It was about 11.30 at night. The van was just being emptied out from middle schoolers and the smells of what was a mixture of McDonald's and Wendy's and that last grab some food on your way to get children back to their parents after a retreat weekend, where as both youth minister and driver, it couldn't come a moment sooner. The girls that were in my particular van had decided to just sing some type of Justin Bieber tune at the top of their lungs for the last 20 miles of the trip over and over, often forgetting the words and just going through the whole thing and then talking about how cute he was at a decibel level that was way too loud for a van. I knew that the next few moments were going to be cleaning the van out of all of the trash that no matter how many times you ask middle schoolers to get out of the van, they still continue to ignore you or recognize that that wasn't mine, so I'm not supposed to get it. Empty out the trailer that had all of their stuff from a simple 24-hour retreat that seemingly required them to pack the entirety of their closet to bring with them. Park the vehicles, make sure that we checked off the mandatory elder-approved church van list of what gas was in the van, where the van was parked, and how the status of the van was allowed to look in order for me to keep my job. And then make the trek home to connect with Sarah for a few minutes before passing out, to wake up the next morning to return to the mandatory Sunday school hour in that church. Oh yes, we still had Sunday school. I was exhausted. And as my van and then the van behind me that had the guys in it, I don't know how I lost the coin flip in that thing. As we pulled in, there was a a shadow in front of the church building under this large overhang. And I thought, that's, that's a, like a human. And I don't know that that's a parent. I don't, I don't recognize that person. Who's waiting for us? So as everything's going out, I'm walking over to this corner and meeting this man whose name is Jose. Jose doesn't speak really any English. I, in a consistent theme of my entire life, Regret taking Latin in high school again and skipping Spanish, all four years of it, and can't communicate very well either. All we can connect on together is that someone told him to come to the church and that Chris would help him. I have no idea who he met or who knew my name or who thought at 11.30 at night on a Saturday night I would actually be at the church. But he stood and said, they told me, Chris will help. And I looked at what was left of the middle schooler's food in the van. I'm like, I don't think we mean that. Parents are taking their kids home. The other driver is coming up and saying, what is going on? And I'm saying, do you know Spanish? I don't know Spanish. I can't tell what Jose needs Can you figure it out with me? So we spent another 30 minutes navigating through the difficulty of communication. I'm frustrated. This elder, his name's Warren, he's frustrated. You can tell Jose's starting to get really, really frustrated too. Like, I just need your help. We finally get to a place where we say, do you have enough food for tonight? If you come back tomorrow, 
there are people who go here that are fluent in Spanish. Maybe we can get some type of connectivity to understand what you're really asking for. Do you have food? And he says, no. So back into the van we go. We ride. I think the only thing open in Xenia, Ohio at that point was Taco Bell. So I offer apologies over and over to my friend and say, here you go. Here's a 12-pack of tacos. If you come here in the morning, we can help. But I have nothing for you tonight. Like, I don't know what to do. And he agreed, walked away with his pack of tacos and his extra jumbo large Pepsi. And I drove home. And it's one of a handful of moments I can remember in my life that are definitive of me feeling overwhelmed by my inability, lack of resources, or simple ignorance at being able to connect to someone and meet a need. It was an overwhelming drive home that I was caught in this competition almost, that I was competing with my my brain that just said, we just had an amazing weekend with middle school students. Jesus did whatever. And this, and yet someone was standing longing for help outside of the door when I got back and I couldn't do anything. And I was really conflicted and it didn't sit well with me. And what was the most overwhelming part was that my thought in that moment was, he's not coming back. He gets that we didn't have anything. Like, he pacified me at the end to say, yeah, 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 tomorrow. Like, I've heard that before. You're one of those guys that puts me off to the next moment. And I had no capacity to communicate. That's not what I meant. Like, I, there really will be resources here tomorrow. Please come back. There are going to be humans here to help. But tonight, I don't have it. And I felt overwhelmed by it as I drove. Can you remember the first time that you felt overwhelmed by what we might describe as injustice? Like this just isn't fair, it isn't right, it isn't equal. Can you remember the first moment that it jumped up for you? We asked a group of soccer players last week that very question. There's a development academy in Cincinnati and they were having issues with racism within their teams. And one of our questions to them was, can you remember the first time that you noticed race was even a thing? Do you, do you remember that moment where someone was treated different than you were, or you were treated differently than someone else because of some part of who you were? And in asking them quest, that question, I actually remembered the first time that I felt it, and it was tied to justice for me, it was a moment as a middle school football player in seventh grade for the first time playing football on a team where a city school and a county school had integrated, and my coach was teaching me how to play a position, and I was not doing well at it. It's a cornerback position, so I'm trying to stop people from catching the ball or stop people from running around the edge and scoring a touchdown. And we're in a drill, and I'm not getting this drill. And as I'm not getting this drill, my coach looks at me and yells, Chris, you are a better leader than that. Get the drill. 
And I go, you are right. I am a better leader than this. I will get the drill. And somehow I'm like internally trying to make it happen. He looks at the guy behind me and says, Travoris, you monkey, can't you do anything right? And that was the moment for me that I went, huh? I can't do it because I'm a leader and I'm not getting into the leadership that I have internally. He can't do it because evolution? Or and I looked at Travoris, and Travoris looked at him and was like, what? And I was like, what happened there? And he was like, oh, man, welcome to life. And I went, I will never respect that coach again. I have never forgotten that moment. Because it just, the light bulb went on. That I'm like, this is not equal. This is not fair. This is not just, but whether it was seventh grade Chris or 20-something Chris, there was two moments that I went, but I don't know that I have anything that helps in this. I don't know what to do except to look at Travoris and go, that, that's not how we're going to play. I couldn't make him not be the coach. I also couldn't call him things back as the coach. I felt trapped. Have you ever felt trapped by the injustice that you see around you? Can you remember the moment? Because I don't know that injustice is something that we always notice, but I have found that for most of us, there's something that has been unjust around us and it has drawn us into a story to say, why is that happening? That's not okay. What is this about? That's not okay. And Can I do anything about it? And the world has felt overwhelming when we start to think about the things that have caught our attention because they're so unhealthy or unequal, maddening, and we don't feel like we have the resources to fix them. And so we run away from them, we pick fights, we stand frozen. We long for change and we look for something else to happen. But we're not sure what the answer is. This is one of the motifs of the Old Testament. That there's a constant longing for a few things that happen throughout God's story. One is that we would learn to love one God. This one God. And that we would learn to be in unison with that God. And that we would learn how to be equal to our neighbors. That we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And then there would be this justice for the vulnerable. It's this story that happens throughout this old writing. The word in Hebrew for justice is used over 400 times. You partner that with righteousness and you have over almost 550 references just in the Old Testament. About justice and righteousness. It's this massive theme that just continues to come out. And yet, when we get into the New Testament in Luke, which is where we've been spending the last few weeks together in a pursuit of understanding justice coming into the kingdom of God, we find that there's this longing, misunderstanding, and almost paralyzation to bring justice to the vulnerable or the oppressed in what is reflected in the kingdom of God. 
in what is reflected by religious leaders. It's stagnant. It's struggling. And I don't know that it's struggling because all of humanity wanted a hierarchy and they wanted to ignore the oppressed or the sick. It's, I've been made aware of it a few times and I don't know what to do about it. So this morning I want us to dive into a story where Jesus reflects justice in the presence of a community as he starts his ministry. But I thought we would do so in such a way that would be memorable. So I wrote five things that I learned from Avengers Endgame and how Jesus fulfills those. We got, you're all ready for that, right? Like we all saw it so we can do spoilers today? Just kidding. We're not going to do that. It's my only little tip of the cap to end game that we'll have today. We're going to dive into Luke chapter 4. But before we do, I want to share this, these two concepts of justice and righteousness. There are a lot of, a lot of definitions around justice and righteousness. There are a lot of references over 50 in the Old Testament, they keep those two words together every time. The justice and righteousness are together, together, together. And as I was reading the definitions, I continued to find this understanding of a belief system that kind of fell below the definition of justice. Like justice can be the idea that there's retribution needed. Right? I, I wronged something. Justice is me paying the penance or the price for righting my wrong. We create laws around retribution at times, right? Like, you broke the law, you drove too fast. This is what we have determined as a society that you owe us for driving too fast and endangering other people. Pay the fine. You've done this too many times. Now go to the class so that you can learn how not to do this and then pay the fine. You will now pay more to your insurance company because you continue to do this over and over and over. And they say, you're high risk of creating this chaos. So there's these payback. We have criminal justice systems. We have laws. We have created things to pay back something that I have done to the world around me. There's also restorative justice. There's the idea of I didn't do anything wrong, yet I am a victim of an unjust system around me and we're working to restore equality not because I need to pay for a crime committed or the victimization of someone else or damage done to someone but the system is against me the his- the story of history has created a gap in equality and we work to create restoration it's often those are often definitions of Justice. Definition of righteousness is often just simply right living with others, like being in right relationships. It's a basic definition. What I found is that in order to want either one of those aspects of justice, I actually have to be looking at a, at a belief system that's underneath that. I want justice when I believe that everyone, all of humanity, has an inherent sacred value. Like, I long for justice when my belief system is centered that everyone 
No matter what their belief system, where they've come from, what upbringing they have had, what cultural values they have that differ than my cultural values, but when I choose to believe that everyone has an inherent sacred value, my demeanor starts to long for justice. I start wanting things to change to restore that sacred aspect of humanity back to those that are around me because I believe that they have value. If I do not believe that they have an inherent sacred value, then I go, not my problem. Not mine to fix. To each his own. You'll figure it out. It all depends on how you grew up. Depends on where you're from. We start to justify or create excuses for disconnection in just relationships when we don't just have a basic understanding that we all have sacred value. We were all created in the image of God, no matter what happened next. But when we start there, we can pursue an understanding of how Jesus inserts himself into the world for justice. Second, righteousness, the intentional effort of disadvantaging oneself to offer advantage or equality to the disadvantaged. What if righteousness is not so much, I'm in a right, I'm just in a peaceful relationship with someone else, but it is the understanding that my advantage in life is required as a sacrifice in order to offer equality or advantage to someone else. It's not the belief that I think is righteous. I think everyone should be at peace with each other. It is I am willing to give up a part of my story in order for others to have a full story being written out. What do I disadvantage? What do I have that is advantageous to the world that I could take less of? What place of humility What place of forgiveness, what place of reconciliation, what resources can I give away, what portion of land do I carve up in order to give to others, what do I offer to society in order to say, I will disadvantage myself and I'll make my story harder so that your story can be equal. That that's actual righteousness, is the pursuit of saying, I would give up so that we can be together. And Jesus plays this out in Luke chapter four in three stories, starting, I'm gonna start reading in verse 33 and verse 31, we've transitioned from his place in Nazareth, Nazareth where he has read from the scroll of Isaiah, he has said, I have come to proclaim good news, and he specifies who he's proclaimed good news for, he's bringing it for the poor, he's bringing it for the impressed, he's bringing it for prisoners, he's bringing it for the sick. He says, I have come to bring this good news, which is a fulfillment of things that Isaiah, Amos, and Micah were saying about the Messiah. There will be a time when one will come and bring good news to those who are vulnerable. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to read that. And then I'm going to tell you, he's here. Like the guy who's going to do all of that, he's right here in your midst. And everyone's going to go, wow, you're an impressive teacher. Then he's going to respond to them to the point where they're going to try to stone him. They want to throw him off of a mountain and watch him die. 
And it says that he sneaks out of Nazareth, gets away from that, and then comes back into Capernaum, goes down uh, to Capernaum. And in verse 33 it says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Pause. He's in the synagogue. This is a demon-possessed person of the community that the community does not know what to do with. He's present. He's around. This isn't the first time that he's stirring up trouble. This isn't the first time that he's causing chaos. He knows what time you go to the synagogue. He knows what happens at the synagogue. He is fully present at the synagogue, and he's been causing chaos. And I don't know that this is someone that no one has dealt with because they're like, we don't know what to do with you, or if this is someone that religious leaders have attempted to deal with and it's not worked. But he's there, spending time in the community, and it has to be overwhelming both to the belief system of the community of like, well, if, I mean, if it, we're following God, why is this guy stirring up trouble week after week after week? My kids are scared to come to church because of him. And it says, Jesus responds, be quiet. He said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them and came out without injuring him. Just a quick reference of if, if justice is a belief that everyone has an inherent sacred value, I love that Jesus would pull this demonic presence out of this man without injuring him. Why? Because you have a sacred inherent value to me and I need to free you without hurting you. It's belief that there's value to this person, but there's power in freeing. And that power for Jesus comes simply by saying, hey, be quiet. Like, I am more powerful than you. A couple of things that are happening here. Jesus is illustrating, I have power over spiritual forces, demons, and they're coming out. I am now fulfilling what I promised in verse 18. I have this power. Watch me. He's going to leave, and this man's not going to be hurt. He offers that sacred value of humanity while he brings healing. In verse 38, it then says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. We think that this is the same Simon as Peter, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. I not only, as Jesus is saying, he not only has power and authority to bring equality and fairness and justice over demonic presence. He's not just picking a spiritual fight, but he also has this power over disease and a very high fever. The illustration there in, in the higher, the, the word high is used to illustrate that this is not just like a low-grade fever that we would take some ibuprofen for, but that this is a significant fever that 
Peter's mother-in-law has been suffering from, and Jesus comes in and bends over her and goes to, and I see righteousness in that because I see this idea of Jesus saying, I'm not going to show you how godlike I am. I'm going to be fully human. Peter, where's your house? Can I just go there? Like, can I just go see your mom and your mother-in-law? Can I just go help that out? Can I just go there and can I walk in and can I just lean over her? This is the only time concerning a disease that Jesus speaks instead of to the person, he speaks to the disease. He speaks to the illness. He speaks to the fever and says, come out and leave. Again, saying, I have power over sickness. I have power over illness. I can bring freedom from that because I give you value. And when the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. This is the third of the instance that I want us to finish on because what I love about this instance is that this God-man who is on earth set apart, anointed as Messiah, sent in order to be the atonement and payment and conqueror of all things, when it's late in the evening, instead of taking all of his power and might and just doing a group healing and saying, okay, everyone just link hands, make sure you're touching each other, and then the first person, as long as you're touching me, then you're touching each other, and we're just going to be in one community, and when I speak healing, all of the stuff is just going to go away. The demons are going to fly out. All of your illness is going to go. And we're going to go home and we're going to get some rest. Because it's late and I've been here all day. And there are so many of you that we're just going to do a group healing. Could have been a really easy step for Jesus to do that. Like he has that kind of power. Or he could have just looked at the crowd and just said, yeah, anything that's from like a spiritual force that's not me, go. Um, and anything that is sick or broken, just kind of go, and um, all right, just check your neighbor out and make sure you're good, and if, if I missed anything, just come see me. Like, that would have just been phenomenal. <laughs> like, neighbors are like, wait a minute, you have 10 fingers again. That's awesome. We haven't held hands in years. That's cool. Wait a minute. Oh, he missed your pinky. Well, you might want to go see him before you leave and see if that can come back. Like, it would be this massive group healing could have happened, but instead I love that Jesus says one at a time they came to him and he touched them. He did not see equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead just became human and placed physical contact on each person and healed them one at a time. I don't know which would have been more powerful. The fact that they were healed or the fact that finally, for many of them, for the first time, after years and years and years of being outcast and having no physical contact with humanity, that this man who had just done these amazing miracles would take the time to embrace them and whisper healing over their life. That's righteousness. For him not to say, I'm God, I can just do this 
quickly and powerfully, but for him to say, what can I give away to you that will give you an advantage? What an advantage to walk out of that night and go, I'm here, here. He held me. He, he held me. And that's what I needed. And that's all it took. He held me. And for him to be so close to what it says, these demon-possessed people, that they're so close that no one can hear them saying, you are who you said you are, because he's saying, shh. It's our secret. Don't tell anyone yet. It was that close of an intimate response that the crowd can't hear because the time wasn't now, but that's justice. It's not about the proclamation to the world. It's about the recognition that we know. We know what God has done. And we know who he is doing it through. So the next morning, I go to church hoping to see Jose. Not sure that he's showing up though. And then someone sneaks into our Sunday school class. That, I, still, I probably need to see counseling over that. We still, yeah, Sunday school is rough. We're trying to figure something out about between Jesus and high school students, nine o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. And someone sticks their head in and says, hey, Chris, there's someone here for you. And I look and I'm like, oh, yeah, Jose must be here because you have a look on your face like someone who doesn't belong here is here. And I walk out and they're like, yeah, this guy said um, he was supposed to see you. We don't know him. We're not sure what to do with him. Do you want to come see him? And I'm like, well, where did you store him? They're like, oh, we stuck him in your office. I'm like, why? We didn't know what to do with him. I'm like, wait, he's just a human, right? Like, take him to church, maybe. Or your son. No, wait, don't take him to your Sunday school class. Let me talk to him. And so we walk into the office, and at that point, Sarah's with me. My wife's with me. She has a little bit of broken Spanish from living in Mexico for a little bit, but her roommate... Um, is completely fluent. So we go into the office, pick up a phone and call her roommate who's living in Louisiana and say, hey, we need your help. And she gets on the phone with Jose and they have a nice conversation in Spanish and then she gives me the phone and she starts walking me through this story of how He's not here legally. He had to jump a train. He thinks he broke his ankle when he jumped the train. He was told that there was work when he got to Xenia. When they got to Xenia, the work was not there. It had gone on. He had two roommates. His two roommates stole all of the money that he had. He was in this house that's in an abandoned apartment that's in Xenia, and everything had been stolen from him. He didn't have the work that he was supposed to do. He didn't know where to go because he thought he was going to be sent back somewhere, and that he had walked to one church the day before on a Saturday afternoon, and when he knocked on the door, the person came to his door and said, who are you? And he said, my name is Jose. I need help. And he said, I'm not the type of person that can help you, um, but there's this guy, Chris, at this other church, and he helps people. I have no, I still, I have no idea why I got that reputation in Xenia, Ohio, that I actually helped people. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe it was a different Chris, and I just happened to be there and be like, yeah, I'll be that Chris. I don't know. It was probably this other Chris that's like standing with a basket full of stuff like that. Jose never showed up. Like, I've been waiting on him for like 12 hours, and I have all of this stuff, and he was probably completely fluent in Spanish. 
and, and was ready to help. And here I am. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm Chris. I'm the one. And so again, we feed him. And as Jose is getting food, I'm like writing down the list of needs. And it's significant. And Sarah and I are discussing like what we should do. And then the guy from the night before, his name Warren, comes in. And he's like, oh, Jose, you're back. And he's like, did we ever figure out? And I'm like, yeah, and here's the list. And Warren's like, I bet in this church that we're in right now, that list could be provided before church was over today. And I was like, yeah, it could. And he's like, but church is almost over. How are we going to get attention? Because like, are we just going to randomly walk out? And I was like, nope. And so I grabbed the list, walked through this back little hallway, walked through a little room, see the worship leader. I'm like, hey, you got one more song? Yeah, we got one more song. I'm like, I need your mic. Walk up interrupt the sermon. Like, I was such a bold 20-something. Walk out on the sermon. Guy's getting ready to do the closing because we had to do an invitation every week because every Sunday you need to know that, like, you can be baptized in that church. Um, and so as he's getting ready to Sunday, I'm walking out. I'm like, yeah, 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 Pete, before we do an invitation, I have a different invitation for you. And he looks over like, you are so fired after this moment right now. And I'm like, I know you're going to fire me for this, but here's the list that I need because we've got a guy at church today that needs this. I need someone who can speak Spanish that connect with him. He needs work. He needs clothes. He needs this and he needs this. We went through all of this stuff. And one by one, people in the church started standing up. And one woman was like, where is he? We were just getting ready to donate my son's uh, clothes um, to Plato's closet. We were going to take them there. And I was like, oh, I know you. I know what family you are. Those are all Abercrombie clothes. Cool. You go meet him right now um, and give him all of your stuff. Another person stood up and they were just like, hey, like I work. I have all migrant workers that work in my, at my farm. Is, is got, and they started collaborating as a church during service. Like they interrupted the whole thing. It was all my fault, I guess. I don't know. I looked at Pete and I was like, is that a, we good? And he, he looked back and he was like, do we even need an invitation? And everyone in the church started responding in different ways to help one another. Because individually, none of us had enough to do it all. We couldn't fix it. I couldn't fix it. I felt so overwhelmed in that story. I couldn't speak Spanish. I didn't have any clothes. I didn't. I didn't have anything. We're in Walnut Hills. And we all have some stuff. And we have ways to help people heal. Some of us are really great at dealing with the mental illness part. Some of us are really great at dealing with the physical healing. Some of us are great at educating. Some of us are great at giving hope. Some of us are great at the hug part, right? Like all you needed was an embrace. Some of us can do the Spanish. Some of us can do the, oh, no one knew you were left out. Some of us are like my friend Warren who just said, hey, did, did we handle it all? Because we're not going to stop until we handle it all. But we all get to believe that there's a, a sacred part of humanity and that that Jesus invites us to use our resources, but that justice transforms communities when we look at problems that we can't solve ourselves and ask Jesus into it, because that's the key to Luke 4. That's the difference, is that there's need everywhere. 
there's just a time where Jesus walks in and says, oh, you guys have been struggling with that? I'm here. Let me tell that to be quiet. Let me hug that person. Let me heal that thing. We have to believe that it's him who is going to overcome the things that right now we're looking at and going, I can't fix that. I can't overcome that. I can't change that. I, I think it's him through us. And that's the story we're being invited to. So do you remember the first time that you felt injustice? Do you remember the time that you felt like, I can't fix that? Do we have the opportunity together to ask Jesus to fix that through us as a community? I think Dylan's going to close with one song. And while we get into that, I created just three questions to finish with. And they're just going to be up on the screen for you to think about. While we finish together and worship in response to a God who fixes problems that have overwhelmed us and that we can't fix on our own. Because there's a lot of injustice. And when I feel alone, I don't believe that I can fix much of it. But when I know that I have access to the power of Jesus and that you're with me, I feel like I can fix a lot of it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this message of justice in just the three stories of you bringing healing in impossible circumstances. And I pray that you just continue to use the resources that are echo and that you help us find uh, justice for the unjust here. It's in your name, amen.